Ephesians 3, and we're going to pick up with the 10th verse there. As you're able, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, as we now look into your word, will you open it to us? Will you, you teach us why with this backdrop, with this, with this darkness, that there is joy that has come to this world? We need to hear from you. And we pray for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Be seated. Well, you can uh, see that we've called this Advent series for this year, uh, Joy to the World, which, of course, is going to cause you to, to think in terms of uh, the hymn. The hymn was written by Isaac Watts in 1719, and here's something for uh, your, uh, again, if you want to share Christmas trivia with, with someone, uh, he didn't intend for it to be a Christmas song. In fact, uh, the emphasis, uh, the hymn, which is based on Psalm 98, we'll use that in future sermons is really about the second coming of Christ, but it fits certainly with, uh, with Christmas and with the celebration of uh, his first coming. We'll get to the second coming aspect of that in, uh, in a few weeks, but for now we're, we're going to today look at even uh, a little bit out of order in the hymn at the words in, uh, in the third verse uh, that say, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make the blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Now, how are we to understand that? Why is that such uh, a popular uh, Christmas hymn, one that is sung so much? And how is talking about uh, the curse 
appropriate for Christmas. Now, I know that some of you, when I said turn to Galatians, and you, you were wondering, okay, we're starting an Advent series, uh, uh, how's, how's this going to work? And then you hear this uh, passage that I read, and some of you in your mind were thinking, well, that's not very Christmassy. It's, it's just talking about a curse. Why would that be appropriate for uh, a Christmas uh, sermon, an Advent sermon, and certainly even as we enter into this? Now, this was referred to earlier, and uh, it's a quote that we use at, at some point every Christmas. Sidlow Baxter said this, separate Christmas Day from Good Friday and Christmas is doomed. Doomed to decay into a merely sentimental or superstitious or sensuous eat, drink, and be merry festivity of December. Which, by the way, that's a pretty good description of what most of Christmas is for most people, isn't it? Not Christian people, but those that don't know Christ. He went on to say, Bethlehem and Golgotha, the manger and the cross, the birth and the death must always be seen together if the real Christmas is to survive with all its profound inspirations. So you get it? What he's saying is if, if we don't think about the cross and why Jesus came, then it's going to really gut the meaning of Christmas and even take away from the joy that Christmas brings if we don't understand what the end game was. Why did Jesus come? And so to understand this and to, to get to our passage, which we'll be in only briefly today, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning to see how this fits in. And the beginning is in Genesis, in Genesis 1. So here's what it was like before the curse. Genesis 1, verse 29, God said, Behold, I've given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And then in verse uh, 31, he says, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So God had spent six days creating, and each day he pronounced a benediction, benny, good, diction, word. He pronounced a good word. He said, it is good. And then after uh, we have the creation, he says, it's very good. So we get a big yes. This, this is good. This is all good. So picture the most beautiful place that you've ever been. The most productive soil, the most beautiful animals, it's a zoo without 
cages, without fences, because the animals aren't going to hurt each other and they're not going to hurt you. That's what we see in this place that he created. This is all before the curse. And it was all, all good. Well, not all. Because after those benedictions, he pronounced the one malediction, bad word. And here's what he said in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper to fit, a helper fit for him. So then look at the solution. So basically what he says is here we've got, uh, you know, all the, all the creation. There's only, only, there's something missing here. So here's his solution. We go to Genesis 2, verse 19. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens and uh, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. This is, uh, uh, what, what was going on here is every boy's dream, basically. You got all the animals, you get to call them what you want, and that's, that's the name. But then he says, but for Adam, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, Adam didn't even know that. God knew that. God knew he needed something more. Adam is, uh, you know, like, well, like some women would say all men are, and that is he was oblivious to what he really needed at this point. Okay? And so what God did is he created Eve. He made a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. So do you get what happened here? Um, when he says, at last, <clears throat> Adam is, is basically saying, wow, do you see that? Look at her. <laughs> he was amazed at what God had given and then he understood what, what was missing up to that point. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father, his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here we see the, the institution of marriage. This is, this is quoted again by Jesus, then quoted again by Paul. One man and one woman, leaving father and mother, holding fast to his wife, and then becoming one flesh. That was the perfect relationship before the fall. And there was communion with the Creator. 
if you look at those, those several chapters, what you see is that, that the interaction that God had with Adam and Eve was direct. It was immediate. It was unhindered. And that was the way God created it. That was the normal way of, of communing with one another before the fall. One more thing about uh, the garden, that every bit of it, everything that took place in the garden was by grace. Because they didn't deserve it. Adam and Eve didn't deserve this beautiful place. In fact, there, there's never a point where the creator owes his creation anything. So anything he gives is by grace. It's important to realize as we see what happened next. Go forward to Genesis 3. It says there, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So here, what we see, this is step one. Satan is, is, begins by implanting a seed of doubt. Did God really say that? Because she was basically saying, yeah, we, we, can, uh, we can eat of all these trees. Well, except that one. Satan knew that God had said that. So he was already lying. He tried the same thing later with Jesus and his temptation. If you are the son of God, Satan knew he was the son of God, but instead of the direct lie, which he will do later, he tried to implant doubt. So it says, and the woman said to the serpent, verse two, we may eat of the fruit of, of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden neither shall you touch it lest you die. So what we see here is that, that Eve shows that she gets it. She understands all that God has given to Adam and Eve. And she also understood the one, the one limitation, the condition. But the serpent, verse 4, said to the woman, He's, he's no longer going to implant doubt. He says, you shall not surely die. So it's a, a direct contradiction. He goes from casting doubt to uh, completely contradicting uh, the truth with an outright lie. So verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So what we see here is the attractiveness of sin. It was good for food, lust of the flesh, uh, a delight to the eyes, lust of the eyes, and desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. That's how we fall into sin. She believed Satan's lie and the man went along with her 
and they ate. By the way, the sin had already taken place when she believed Satan rather than believing God. The sin had already taken place. It wasn't just about the eating. So with the man going along, he wasn't fulfilling his role. He wasn't protecting his, his wife. And he follows the woman into sin. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were open. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So the first result of this sin was shame for that which had been good. They tried to cover themselves. And I'm sure it was pretty unsuccessful as well. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And uh, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. The Lord called to the man, said to him, where are you? Now, God already knew where he was. What he was saying is, why are you hiding? Why are we not communing like we always do? And he, Adam, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman, this is a great excuse, by the way. He said, <laughs> he said the woman who you gave to, to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. We see how perverted this is. The man blames the woman and he blames God. She gave it to me. And by the way, remember, you gave her to me. <laughs> and then the woman blames the serpent. The shifting of blame. So what then? Going on in chapter 3, verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, and here's where we, uh, we get to the curse. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So God begins with the tool of, of Satan, the serpent, even though he was just passively used. So when you see a snake slithering, uh, and as I, I always say about snakes, they're all deadly, and some of them are also poisonous. So, <laughs> but when, when you see a, a snake slithering on its belly, try to be reminded of this. Satan will eventually be defeated. Hard to think when you're running. <laughs> but that's a part of what this sign is. And then in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
We're going to return to this. It goes on in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. So what we see is God's blessing and his judgment that fell on the woman because of the fall. The blessing shall bring forth children. The hardship. The pain that will be involved with that. The blessing in bringing forth children, that's how the Savior is going to come to the world, through a woman. And the hardship is the difficulty and the pain. And then the last part, uh, in terms of dependence on the husband, is generally considered to be uh, the, the... curse of overdependence at times that can take place. Then verse 17, and to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Now listen to this. This is what we've been getting to. Verse 18, thorns and thistles shall bring forth For you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat the bread. There we go. No more let thorns infest the ground. No more let sorrows grow. He comes to make the blessings flow far as the curse is found. So if there is Joy in the world, it is because that curse is reversed. And that's what we see here. Work is not a curse. It becomes difficult because of the curse. Because of sin being in the world. And then the last part of the curse, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For your dust and to dust you'll return. So he's talking about death. So for them, immediately for Adam and Eve, they experienced a separation from God. They didn't have that same uh, unhindered relationship with him because sin was in the world. And then there's physical death where the soul is torn from the body. That was not the way we are made to be. And then eternal death, a separation from God forever. So all of this is a description of how the world was cursed after the fall. What would make it right? What would reverse that? Is there any way it could be reversed? So let's go back to the pronouncement uh, uh, because in that there is a promise. There's a fix. So he says, here's the curse. It's not a quick fix. It's not an easy fix, but it's an eventual one, and it's a permanent fix. When you see evil in the world, when you see sickness and suffering, when you see your own body winding down, when you see death, we should have two reactions from a biblical perspective. One is this is not the way it's supposed to be. But secondly, 
this is not the way it will always be. And that's our great hope. So what's going to change it? Well, back in Genesis 3.15, I'll put enmity between you, he's speaking to uh, Satan and the woman. So the woman was first seduced. Man in his pride blamed the woman. But through the woman, the Savior will be provided. And he says, uh, I'll put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. So he's saying, between, I'll put enmity between Satan and Christ. And he, Christ, shall bruise your head, and you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. A bruised heel hurts, but it doesn't destroy bruised head in this case is fatal. So here we are at Genesis 3, three chapters into the Bible, and then the whole rest of the scripture promises the answers for the curse that has just been pronounced. The fall shows that we're helpless unless someone comes to help. Adam and Eve couldn't even cover up uh, their own shame. So then as they stood now outside of that glorious paradise that we described, they experienced and began to experience a fallen world. And their only hope was for this coming Messiah. That's why Christmas is necessary. The rest of Scripture promises Christ and the cross, and that takes us to the Galatians passage that we read at the very beginning. This is not all introduction, don't worry, but it is context. Because everyone has to deal with the curse. There are no exceptions. Far as the curse is found, how far is it found? Everywhere and everyone. If you ever experience frustration in this life, if you ever experience relationship issues in this life, if you experience grief, if you experience anger, when you experience sin and the guilt of it, you are dealing with the curse. You deal with the curse when you're under it and you're trying to work your own way out of it. And you deal with the curse when you realize you can't work your way out of it. And that's what Galatians tells us. In Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. He's basically saying, if you're trying to work your way out from under this curse, you're still under it. 
for it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident, he says, that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So what's the answer? He says this, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So here is this curse that that we've talked about how it came into the world, how it has affected the world, and how it affects everyone. That's how far the curse is found. It is found upon everyone and in everything that is in this world. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might be to the Gentiles. So, so there it is. What it's saying is this salvation goes as far as the curse is found. If everyone is under it, there is an answer also for everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life. That is the only thing that will will reverse the curse in our lives. Will we still have to live with things, deal with frustrations and difficult relationships and all of these things? Yes, as long as we're in this life. And that's why there will come a time when Jesus comes again and there will be no more curse. Without Jesus, the curse is still found. In Jesus, because of his work, that's why there is joy to this world. Let's pray. Lord, we we have all and we do all experience the profound effects of the curse in our world and in our lives. But thank you that you didn't leave us there. You didn't give up on, on Adam and Eve and on all those who came after them, and that includes us. But instead, you had a plan, a good plan, a right plan to reverse what had taken place because of that curse. Thank you for Jesus. Give us hearts to believe and trust in him. And we pray this in his name. Amen.